Welcome to Season 2, Episode 83 of the Banded About podcast series, which also happens to be the final interview for this Engine Room series. My guest today spent five and a half years playing and headlining international festivals, making TV appearances on David Letterman and Conan O'Brien, and living the life that most aspiring musicians can only dream about, a world of rock stardom. Then, he decided to give up the rock star lifestyle, choosing instead to explore new avenues and musical ventures and to be more in touch with humanity, working with and creating programs for youth that encourage them to follow their dreams and pursue their passion for music, no matter what limits society had placed on them. Before I introduce my guest, it's time for me to play the Banded About theme song, which was written and recorded for the Banded About podcast series by the very talented Catherine Lambert and Michael Mitzi Bryant. that I introduce today's guest, Travis Dempsey. Welcome, Travis, and thank you for making time to chat with me today. Hi, Di, and uh, thank you for asking me to come onto your podcast. I appreciate it. Oh, my pleasure. Now, Travis, you weren't born in South Australia. No, I'm a Victorian that has moved across to live in South Australia now with my family. Really happy that I've made the move. Adelaide's been great so far for me. I miss Victoria, of course, but I'm up for adventure. Adelaide's giving me that for sure. Excellent. So tell us a little bit about where you were born and the area that you grew up in. I was born in Noble Park in Victoria, which is a southeast suburb, and we moved down to dairy farming community down in Gippsland, Victoria, mm-hmm. specifically a place called Allen Bank and Bullen Bullen, and then eventually settling in Warrigal, which is a farming town. Population back then probably was about Ten to 15,000. We were just regular country folk. My dad was a dairy farmer for some time and then he moved into sort of working for the power station down there. And mum was into showing dogs and grooming dogs. So we always had lots of dogs around our house. Very rural and very country. Lived on 20 or 30 acres sometimes or more. Rode dirt bikes, all that sort of stuff. Yeah. Okay. Did either of your parents or anyone else in the family come from a musical background? No, I've not discovered anyone from my family that's entered into the music field, even doing some research into family history. As you get older, just trying to work out why do you think the way you do, why do you act the way you do. I'm intrigued by that, you know, just the DNA and the memory of the DNA and stuff like that. So wondering where does that musicalness come from or that intrigue about it? But no, none of my family were into music at all like that, no. Okay. I read that it was a high school teacher that changed your life when he sent you to a timeout room that contained an old drum kit. Was that true? Yes, true. 
I had some challenges within my own family and there was stuff going on that young people just don't have the emotional intelligence to really work through. And due to that and probably not being given a lot of attention because my parents were going through their own issues and their own needs, I suppose, I guess I was yearning for attention. And in saying that, I suppose, you know, would do stupid things at school to get that attention of my peers and had to move around quite a few schools because of that poor behaviour. The behaviour was never malicious or, you know, no bullying or anything like that. It was more just attention-seeking and just a a want of wanting to fit in and feel like I've, you know, got some community around me. And, yeah, luckily for me, I went to a very small high school called Neerham South High School in Gippsland, even more regional than my own, the town that I was living in, Um, probably a population of maybe a 1,000 people at that stage. And the high school probably had about 200 kids, 150 kids in the whole high school maybe. And it didn't really have much art or music programs. It was very uh, basic high school with, you know, sports thrown in for good measure. I was really into skateboarding and BMX and at that stage sort of punk rock, that whole thing was my bag. So I was very much a square peg in a round hole. So I felt a bit lost and luckily for me, when I was in trouble once, a teacher did ask me to go to a timeout room and our timeout room was actually a bit of a dilapidated 1940s house next to the high school. And the year 12s would be able to go over there and I guess have study break or what have you. And I went over there one day and there was nothing to do and there was a drum kit sort of stacked in the corner under a tarp, I think it was. And I pulled that tarp off and sort of started hitting the drums, basically. And the teacher discovered me hitting those drums and it had really invoked some sort of cosmic, weird, like feeling. It was truly amazing. And that teacher was really cool and just said, look, whenever you feel sort of angry or a bit lost, you can come and play the drums. And that really set my career on course. Once I started playing the drums, it allowed me to go to a space that I hadn't been able to go to before, which I guess is what people call a happy space or a happy place. It just really allowed me to just be in the moment and it calmed down my possibly, you know, undiagnosed ADD. (laughs) And, you know, I was angry. I was really angry for the same reason lots of people are angry within their own family. My dad had some issues with alcohol. There were some, you know, problems at home. I was disenfranchised and finding the drums was truly life-changing. Yeah. Did you manage to have any drum lessons or did you have no other option but to teach yourself due to the situation at home? A drum teacher was coming to our school sporadically. I probably had about three or four lessons, so, you know, not much enough to at least get the basic rock beat down and not very well mind you of course you know I'm still working on that you know 30 years later it was enough to sort of get the basic uh, rock beat down and I could sort of play along to my favorite records at the time and it wasn't until many 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 years later I I managed and when I'm talking sort of you know I think I was 14 when I started the drums or something like that Maybe around 17, three years later, when I'd really sort of invested in the drums as far as like my passion and what I want to do, I started to get some lessons at Drum Tech, which is a very famous drum shop and educational facility in Melbourne. Mm -hmm. And I studied with some amazing drum teachers, but really I didn't have the aptitude to sit and listen to these amazing teachers. You know, I, I picked up obviously some stuff from them, but I was very much more an experiential sort of drummer. So I always say that I'm a garage rock drummer because pretty much all my experience comes from just playing in bands and just jamming with friends and stuff like that. So, I mean, I picked up stuff at Drum Tech and it wasn't their fault. I didn't have the right headspace or attention span to really learn all the great stuff they were trying to teach me. I just want to jam along to my favourite bands. That's okay too sometimes. Yeah. So when did you get your first set of drums? My first set of drums was actually from the high school I went to at Newham South. No one else was playing the drums and 
the high school teacher mentioned that it was either the high school drums, I think it was the high school drums, or he had found some drums maybe at a, a yard sale or something like that. And he actually dropped them off to my house and it was a kick drum and a snare and a rack tom. There was no floor tom. And at that stage, there was no cymbals either. So if you're talking primitive, I was pretty primitive for my first six months or until I managed to get a cymbal. I don't even think I had hi-hats. I think I got a crash cymbal eventually. I knew I was missing parts. It wasn't like I didn't know that you know you watch video clips and stuff and you go I don't have that so I had to just imagine that I had the symbols there so pretty much my first introduction to drums or my own drum kit was pretty much playing very primitive Bo Diddley hoodoo gurus type tom tom drum beats because I didn't even have symbols but you know necessity is the mother of invention right and some of that DNA still probably comes through now in my drumming now in lots of ways so what was the first band that you joined Band-wise, I guess like most garage bands or punk bands or whatever, you just join people that just want to play music. Mm. So the first band in my local town that I could find people to jam with was an amalgamation of some high school friends and local friends that we all knew from playing footy or riding BMXs or what have you. And we are all on different pages musically, what our influences were, so you just sort of join them together and become that band. I think pretty much, if memory serves me correct, I think we were called slaves of pain and we played primarily at that time i'm going to say heavy metal like anything from sort of black sabbath through to iron maiden stuff like that and at that stage because i lived in the country i wasn't exposed to a lot of music really we didn't even really have fm stations that were from melbourne at that stage it was quite syndicated radio so it just played sort of top 40 stuff so when i did get these snippets of different music coming into my life it would take me on a new journey so punk rock came a little bit after the heavy metal stuff slaves of pain were primarily heavy metal and i liked playing it but it wasn't a right fit for me so it was only later on when i found my thing that i went Oh, okay. It was a great introduction to at least gigging and doing all ages shows in my local town and learning how to deal with people in an artistic confined space, like as in being in a band. People can change under pressure or under influences and all that sort of stuff. So, you know, it was a great start. Can you remember your first gig? I think my first gig was probably like a high school gig, you know, when you do end of year performances. Yeah. And I don't remember what we played. I think my first gig, I had to play like a soundtrack to a, a BBC TV show. I had to drum that for the high school. There were some people playing bass and who knows. I can't remember the other instruments. I know there was a group of us. It's pretty hazy now, but it was like EastEnders or something like that. One of those shows that has one of those sort of very formulaic soundtracks and I had to drum that. So that, that would have been my first gig. So that's probably like 14. Okay. So when you left school, what was the first job that you had? Oh, my goodness. If anyone does ever listen to this podcast, I would say that we all have to do various jobs to supplement that creative path we want to go on. My first job from leaving school was I was a boilermaker. I got a boilermaking apprenticeship and I possibly worked about four months or five months and it was just terrible. I was a typical apprentice. You know, I had to work with older gentlemen that had come through a different era and they didn't talk to you. They would make you do like the worst jobs and would berate you with swear words and demoralising sort of behaviour and it just got to that point that I just couldn't take it anymore. I mean, they timed you going to the toilet and stuff like that. I've always had a very good ability to just go, this doesn't suit me, 
and I move on. So I quit that and then I went into horticultural and I started working at nurseries, which was the sort of second apprenticeship. And it was good. I had a fantastic boss. The commute was an hour each way each day and I was catching public transport because I didn't drive then. I was quite young, 16 and a half, 17. Mm. And whilst it was quite nice being around nature, I guess, my brain was just fixated on the life I thought I should be leading, which was by that stage at 16 and a half and I'd been drumming for a couple of years and it was just a way to supplement my income or to actually have an income actually because music wasn't giving me an income yet. Yeah. So you eventually began working in a music store, didn't you? Yes. I had made the initial move from Warrigal and Gippsland up to Melbourne maybe mid-90s, 90, I'm going to say 94, something like that, 93. Luckily for me, I moved to a place called Fitzroy in Melbourne. Wow, what a suburb to move to. Probably the most happening sort of rock and roll, artistic, creative place you can move to. And luckily for me, I did manage to get a part-time job at Drummer's Paradise, which is a very well-known drum store in uh, Richmond in Victoria. I managed to start by, you know, vacuuming and polishing cymbals and building drum kits. And I just thought it was the greatest job that I'd ever had. And not only that, you start to come into contact with other drummers coming into the store and you're hearing about their adventures and what gear they're using and why they use that gear. I became really attuned to drummers' needs, I think, there, because I just didn't do it as a job. I, I lived and breathed it. I still have friendships of people that I used to serve there back in the mid-90s that are drummers that still ask me about advice about when they get into recording studios and whatnot, what would I think they should be using and stuff like that. It was great for me. I loved it. And I moved from that drum store to another drum store called Revolver, which is over in another really cool rock and roll suburb, Paran. And same thing, just coming into contact with just drummers all day and or other musicians that would come in with drummers. And it's a great way to build up networks. You're not out late at night just trying to build relationships. You're also doing it during the day. So I'm really thankful for landing those jobs. They held me in really good stead. It was another form of education in the drumming world. It wasn't just like you're going to be a good drummer or you are a good drummer or you will be a good drummer. It's also understanding the equipment and why you should be using certain equipment and the art of all that equipment. I loved it. Yeah, and you were playing with some bands around that time as well? Absolutely. I would play with any band in Melbourne. I played with folk bands. I played with Irish guys that were in their 60s and 70s. I played with punk bands. I played with any style I would put my hand up for. And I would try and be a bit of a chameleon. So if I joined those bands, I would sort of somewhat change my appearance so at least I look like part of the band. And I was desperately seeking just to find connection with people. And it takes a while. You know, Melbourne's a big city and I was a country guy and I didn't quite have that swagger that a lot of the Melbourne people had that was city typed. It took a long while. Eventually, I did find a couple of really great mates of mine now, Craig and another friend called Jono. And they had like a poppy, punky band going and I joined them and that went for a period of a couple of years in Melbourne that was a bit more solid than all the other stuff I'd been doing. It wasn't exactly where I was at musically but they were great mates and we just had fun. We did some horrible gigs. We would play midnight on a Sunday night in Melbourne at bars in St Kilda. So if you're from Victoria and you know midnight in St Kilda on a Sunday night, you've got quite nefarious characters around that suburb. A pretty cool introduction into what Melbourne's like after hours. It was very seedy. Great introduction. Yeah, <laughs> Absolutely. You actually were to end up meeting your bandmates whilst you were working in a music store. Yep. 
That's correct. I was working at Revolver and Scott, the bass player, came in and spoke to me about they were looking for a drummer. They had been going for some time under a different name and recently they'd become the living end and they'd been going under that guise maybe a couple of years, but like hundreds of other Melbourne bands were just, you know, just the name, you know, they were out there playing and doing it, but they had really started to work towards songwriting and putting more professionalism into what they were doing. They came in and said, look, we're looking for a drummer. They didn't know me. And I said, oh, I could be interested. I'm looking for a gig. And I think either Scott gave me a cassette on the day or maybe came back the next day and dropped off a cassette. And I played that cassette and it had some demo songs and maybe a couple of recorded songs from their first EP they were just about to put out. Sorry, their EP was called Hellbound, I think it was. And they had some songs and he had some demo songs from their second EP, which called It's For Your Own Good. And I listened to that and I was like, oh, wow, I really like this. This is certainly in the realm of what I've been looking for. And we agreed to have a jam. And at that jam, you know, I made a rookie mistake. I tried to play what I thought they would want, which wasn't exactly my style. And I felt after that rehearsal that, oh, I'm not the guy for this. And then we tried another rehearsal. And same thing, I just didn't gel musically with them. And I basically said to them, look, I'm probably your guy. And they said, no, 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 we think it's going okay. And then the third jam, I think I just sort of threw caution to the wind and just started drumming my own style. And they seemed quite happy of that. They wanted to be a hybrid of all the things that they were influenced by. And I guess I was a piece of that puzzle that from a foundation point of view, as in drumming, they weren't particularly always wanting to have rockabilly drums in every song, even though they're well known in that world. My thing was more, I guess garage rock and roll or, or punk or whatever and they said no we want that so from that moment I thought you know what I'll give it a go we'll do some gigs together if, if they want me to do these gigs and they had some gigs booked and we started doing the gigs and just sort of started that relationship and I was like oh I like the guys and they're really committed which I was really happy about because I'd been with so many flaky people in bands that just were more about yay we've got free beer at the gig and stuff the guys in Living End didn't care about that stuff they wanted to just keep practicing every day and I was like wow I found I found my people that must have been great it was fantastic again another life-changing moment mm. after a year of solid touring things began to skyrocket for you guys after the release of the double a-side single second solution prisoner of society yes that's correct upward trajectory after that for sure yeah amazing i mean what it became the highest selling single of the 90s didn't it look i don't know i've never really kept tabs on that stuff i know it's it's up there people tell me that sort of stuff I've never really paid too much attention to that sort of stuff. I mean, whilst I was in the band, I probably was a bit more inclined to be like, oh, my goodness, this is amazing. But I suppose a bit of time's passed since then. But whatever it is, it was an amazing opportunity for someone like myself and the other guys in the band to start having some of those dreams come true, like people on TV or people on radio that you hear or see. All of a sudden, you are starting to sort of, in a way, become that too. Obviously did really big things. I mean, Prisoner of Society took us all around the world, that song. Yeah, definitely. And naturally resulted in bigger and better shows. Do you uh, remember yeah. your first big event with the band? I think the first big event for me was we played Festival Hall in Melbourne and we were supporting UMI and Soundgarden. That was the first big thing that sort of happened for me when once I joined that band, if memory serves me correct. Maybe that was like 96? Maybe 96, something like that. I mean, that was playing to a couple of thousand people as they're walking in to see UMI and Soundgarden. And an amazing experience for me because, A, I had friends the show, so that was like real validation that what I'd been working towards is starting to come to fruition. And at the end of the show, I, I sat with Rusty, the drummer from UMI, Matt Cameron from Soundgarden, and we sat and just spoke about 
cymbals and drums and stuff. Like out of all the millions of memories I should remember, that one's a pivotal one for me to meet Rusty from UMI, who was a one of the drummers I looked up to in the Australian rock scene. And then, you know, Matt Cameron, my goodness. That was the first big show I did with Living In. I could probably go back on the internet and look all this stuff up and someone will tell me, no, no, your first big show was something else. But <laughs> at, at this stage, I'll just go with that. You but know? that's the one uh, that's sticking with you, yeah. Th- that was the first big Living In thing for me, yes. Mm. And I'm sure you've got lots of memorable stories. Are there any that you'd like to share? Well, I think the most memorable thing about, I suppose, you know, the touring and the big rock shows is going to other communities or other cultures around the world and just meeting like-minded people and just realising that the bubble you live within, which is, you know, rock band and you're touring the world or whatever, that wherever you go in the world, you just meet amazing people that are just like you. They've all got family and friends and their football team and their dog and their cat and they love rock and roll or they love punk rock or they love whatever. And they really appreciate you coming to, you know, Japan or London or Scotland or or wherever you are. So they're sort of like the highlights for me. Musically, I'm not finished. So in some ways, I feel like I'm still learning my craft and I'm still getting better. So I look back with some cringe moments with, you know, maybe my performance, some things around the world and go, oh, I could have done better. But one thing that couldn't have been done better is just, you know, that meeting people and just having a great time with people and seeing different cultures. So that's really the highlight for me. Yeah. And you played at the Home Bake Festival in 2000 with a broken ankle. Yeah, it was pretty bad. I was being a country guy the night before Home Bake. I was kicking a football at a barbecue thrown by EMI Records at the time. Somewhere on a beach somewhere, we weren't on the sand, we were on like the grassy area up above the sand. We are kicking a football and it was like literally the last, it was dusk, we are going back to the hotel and I tried to take a bit of a specky on someone and as I landed, I heard it pop and I knew it was bad. That night it went purpley black. So the next morning I managed to go see a doctor and they said, we think it's broken. You have to get x-rays. And I didn't get x-rays. We strapped it up and I think I might have got a cortisone injection in it, something like that. But needless to say, 20 minutes before going on to stage, I was still in a backstage dressing room, you know, in Sydney. And we were the headline band. We were the last band on, I think, for that night. So I wasn't going to not do it. Yeah, it was all strapped up. I had some cans of Coke and hobbled onto the stage. And when the roar happened, you know, I think it was 40,000 people that night. Adrenaline just got me through. But after the gig, I was in pain. I never really got it checked out. But because I used to skateboard and BMX a lot in my youth, and I mean a lot, like I was fanatical about that stuff. Didn't mean I was very good at it, but I had a lot of accidents. I've broken my ankles lots of times. So it's hard to know that specky. Did I break it? Did I break it again? My ankle bones stick out horribly now. They've been broken that many times. So it was a fantastic gig. Occasionally it'll pop up, you know, as a memory on YouTube or something like that, or someone will link me into home bait. Watch the songs and I think, God, we're young. We're playing the songs way too fast. But then there's that moment where I have to think, oh, that's right. I was playing with pretty much either broken ankle or it was, you know, if it wasn't broken, it was certainly um, torn ligaments. And if anyone knows about torn ligaments, you can't even walk on your foot. So amazing what adrenaline and a couple of cans of Coke will do. Yeah. I've had plenty of ankle injuries myself over the years. I know how painful it can be when you do it really badly. So to have a broken one and then to then go on stage and actually play. I used crutches to sort of get onto the stage, I think, until I walked on stage. So it was pretty bad. But it's just one of many injuries, (laughs) drumming. So par for the course. There's obviously been a lot of highlights from this part of your musical journey. Mm -hmm. Are there any in particular that stand out? 
Again, I think just meeting other people around the world and just meeting other musicians was just fantastic. I never would have thought my wildest dreams really, if you had spoken to me at 14 or 15, that if I kept at this amazing art drumming, that this could take you to Japan or to Los Angeles or New York or London. You know, it's truly amazing. Highlights for me would certainly be we did go to East Timor to support our armed service men and women to do a concert with Kylie Minogue and John Farnham. And that was a highlight, not musically, because we didn't really play a lot of music. We just did a couple of songs or what have you. But to be flown over to East Timor from Darwin in like a, a Hercules is quite crazy when they're dropping things out the back of the Hercules in the air. And I wasn't big on flying at the best of times. So jumping on a Hercules with dark clouds coming out of Darwin as you're flying to East Timor was crazy. And doing that show with Doc Neeson, I got to play drums while Kylie Minogue sang and Doc Neeson and from the Angels. I think that was a real highlight. I went with one of my best friends, Lindsay, who was also our guitar tech at the time. So to share that experience with, you know, the band and some friends was truly amazing. I think doing our first LA show ever at the Roxy, in Los Angeles, which I'd heard about for so long, these fabulous venues. And we did our first show there. And I remember just walking up Sunset Boulevard that night after that show and just feeling like elated and ending up on some wild excursion that night down to Santa Monica, which is, you know, 20 or 30 Ks out of LA and getting picked up at 8am the next morning by the band because I'd had an all-nighter. Just those sorts of things. Look, there is so many. But again, the highlight was just nearly the whole thing. Like it really was. I mean, sure, there was, there was lots of negatives too, but I don't really remember the negatives too much anymore. I remember pivotal ones, but I mean, by and large, it was a happy marriage. You know? Yeah. Now, your rock and roll lifestyle all came to an end in 2001 when you decided to leave the band. Yep. yep. Why did you leave? Look, I suppose during the trajectory of Living End, when you've got that opportunity to go overseas and start touring, it's like, it's just amazing. And then as the touring got more and more, Living End became quite an in-demand act. So we were getting amazing opportunities all around the world. And, you know, bands like Green Day or The Offspring or whoever, bands of that ilk, would say, come and tour with us, or would you like to tour with us, or would you like to do festivals, people would say, in England or Belgium or Holland or Germany, all that sort of stuff. And we would say yes. And what that meant was that you started to leave your old life behind and you start to live in this bubble which really centres around you, and it has to. It's quite a selfish pursuit going music full-time. You really have to commit to it. You're all in. And I suppose after, you know, nearly six years, I had had a, a pretty pivotal moment where when I did come back to Australia, I felt, and I don't suffer really from anxiety or anything like that, but I felt anxiety weighing on me to nearly retreat from the world when I got back from tour. It was nearly like, and I'm not likening this to someone going away to fight in a war because we're young guys in a, in a punk rock band touring the world eating pizza so it's very different but you know you do hear about this post-traumatic stress and I would come home and I know I should be reaching out to people because I haven't seen my friends for six months or eight months or whatever but I just really became quite reclusive when I would come home I didn't mm. want to go see bands I just wanted to stay at home and potter around I still play drums every day at home, which is, you know, my therapy as well as my job. I just wanted to hang out with my dogs and, and do nothing. And then during the course of that, 
I had built up a very small relationship with the Starlight Foundation. I had done some guest appearances, if you want to use that word or, or what have you. I'd volunteered to someone that would go into hospitals and talk to young kids that were going through their treatments or their injuries in Ronald McDonald wing of the hospital. And in Sydney in particular, I'd met a young person who was probably about 12 or 13 at the time called Adam. Adam was battling leukemia. So he'd built up a little bit of a friendship and I would go and see Adam when I could, when I'd come back to Sydney. So during the course of that, when I was back in Australia, I did ring around the Christmas time, I think it was, to sort of talk to Adam and the hospital said he'd gone home for Christmas. They gave me the number to the parents because they knew who I was and we'd built up a little bit of a relationship. And I remember just ringing and and finding out that Adam had gone home, but he had passed away at the age of 14, I think it was, or 15. And I just remembered it was just very heavy for me. And some period after that, I went back on tour. The bank started to become a little bit fractured, not in a, a way where we're arguing or anything like that. We always seemed to get along very well, considering we lived in each other's pockets. But just on a musical sense, I wasn't really liking the direction where the songwriting was going. That's mm. not to say it's not brilliant songwriting, but my personal taste, I just didn't feel it suited what I wanted to do. So that was a challenge because you're trying to maintain a relationship. And then the tours were starting to, the diary that I had was sort of months ahead, if not a year ahead of bookings again. And I'd just gotten home. I had to really search deep and just think, am I in the band for the right reasons? Just had someone young die. They'll never get that opportunity to live life. I've got a bit of weight around this going away again. I just wanted to sort of, I suppose, I don't want to use the word normalise my life, but I just wanted to be able to see my friends again and go to the football some weekends. You know, even driving your own car. I mean, when you're on a tour bus or flying around the world, you don't drive a car for a year. Mm. Like, it just seems so weird. It seems so foreign. But I would get home and have muscle cars in the garage, all these, you know, perks of, you know, doing well in the band, and I never got to use them. So I sort of thought about it and went, what are my value systems? What do I value in life? My conclusion was that, I love drums so much that I'm really happy just to sit in my own house and play the drums. I don't need to be a big rock star. It's fun and it's great. But if that means that I have to sacrifice hanging out with my lifelong friends and my my girlfriends or my dogs or all that, I thought I need more of a balance to be the true artist that I wanted to be. And I also felt like I wanted to, in some ways, keep the ideology of punk rock and I thought, how can I use that sort of ideology and use it for good? I just don't want to be playing a show and not being able to talk to people in the audience because you've got to rush back to your hotel because you're only going to get five hours sleep because you've got to be on a TV show tomorrow or radio station to spruik your album. Some people can do that and more power to them. You know, this is not me bagging what you have to do to make it. I just felt like I'd reached the top of my mountain. I'd gotten to some level of people knew who I was, I suppose, so I had a little taste of that, you know, for a while. And I got endorsed by drum companies, so I got free drum kits. I bought a flash car. I bought a house in the city. I had all the trappings, I suppose. Well, I'm not saying that we were you 2 or the Chili Peppers, you know. I only had one bathroom, you know what I'm saying? But (laughs) I don't want to make it sound like I had swimming pools in the shape of treble clefts. We're talking very, you know, modest. Compared to all my friends and peers in Melbourne, living in, we're killing it. We were earning a wage. And so what I came to was that conclusion that I'll be pretty happy if I play in a garage punk rock band in Melbourne and still get to see my football team on weekends and, you know, hang out with my girlfriend at the time. 
all my dogs. And so that was the decision I made. And it's easy to have, you know, 2020 vision looking back, isn't it? But it was the right decision for me because when I left the band, I felt like I had freedom to choose what I wanted to do artistically. The Living End had choices, of course, too. And they've made their choices, but the choices that they've made didn't really suit what I wanted to do. And I didn't want to cheat people. And by that, I mean, I absolutely, to the point of like fanatical dreaming, when I was into my bands, I truly believed in them. It was like a religious experience. It helped me through the tough times, I suppose, as music does. So I didn't want to be going out on stage and sort of running through, just going through the motions. I didn't want to do that to people. We had toured a lot with some bands that were fantastic at what they do, but they would come out and say the same jokes each night. And I realised, wow, there's no space for taking daring step and, and letting the audience see something that they'll never see again or the next show won't see. I like bands that can do that sometimes. I didn't want to be formulaic. So, yeah, I quit the band. and <laughs> I've never been in a big band ever since. No. <laughs> Your journey, I suppose, went on a completely different track, didn't it? Yep. I left the band and I built up a very successful drum teching business. Again, working in those drum stores and also whilst in the living end, I was a very big collector of vintage drums in particular. And because I would always get to sound check early with my gigs, always hours early, like fooling around on my drums or tuning them or talking to the sound people about how did my drum sound last night? Do they echo too much? Let's try some different skins tonight. I love the art of that. So in Melbourne, I became really known as the guy. I worked on hundreds of albums and I would rent out all my gear to all these bands. I don't know, like name drop or anything like that, but it was like everyone. I hired out drums to some of the best drummers in the world. My drum tuning is on some of those five times platinum songs in Australia. I'm going to say there'd be 20 of those songs that I've tuned the drums for or I helped the drummer work on the pattern or what have you. That was a business that went very well. I worked with all the big name producers and I was probably their first call guy. They would ring me and say, hey, I've got someone coming from England. So-and-so's in town for this weekend. Can you quickly jump in your ute and bring me some drums? And I would be dropping drums off at 7am sometimes, 9 o'clock at night. Sometimes I would sit there for nine hours a day, 10 hours a day, tuning drums between each take or songs. And it was great. You know, I made a living out of it. During the course of that though, I was reaching out to, I didn't exactly know what I wanted to do. I didn't know what the name of the job was called, but I just knew that if I could help young people coming through life and help them find their purpose, that would be a really punk rock thing to do in lots of ways. And I thought, well, my thing is drumming. And I thought maybe if people did drumming, they might find that happy place that I get to go to when I play the drums. I realise not everyone has a vivid imagination like I do, but what I found was that after knocking on doors for many, many months of all these different social work or youth work or community development people, eventually I got an ability to go into White Line, which was a not-for-profit organisation built around helping young people in the judicial system or coming out of the judicial system. And they said, look, why don't you take some drums into some of the junior prisons or junior places and let's do some drumming. So I would take in African drums, gem bass primarily, and I would help young people sort of work on hip-hop beats or beats. And after 20 or 30 minutes of that, your hands are sore, you're exhausted, you've had an endorphin rush. And the prisons would say to me, wow, you connect really well with these young kids. 
you're a straight shooter. Started building and building until I was in different prisons all around Victoria, like women's prisons, hardened gangsters in these big prisons in Melbourne that you hear about on Underbelly. And I would go in there nearly weekly and do drumming with all the inmates that wanted to do drumming, which then started to lead into corporate team building. I would work with anyone from Minta Allison Group through to the AFL. I did seven or six years for the AFL Players Association. And then that started turning into team building with the drums and also, I suppose, what we call motivational talking. And then I would start to do that in high schools. I would get inquiries about high school saying we want someone to come and inspire our young people. So I would go with my drums and talk a little bit about my life and where I'd come from and the challenges I faced and how I worked through them. And this is where I'm at now. And I started to develop like a value system that I would talk to young people about, which was based around sort of cognitive behavior type therapy stuff, neuro-linguistic programming and narrative therapy. I mean, I still do that to this day. So at one stage, yeah, I was drum teching, I was motivational talking for like AFL or Cricketers Victoria, lawyer groups, I was playing in garage punk bands, and then I was also running stuff in prisons, Indigenous healing workshops, new arrivals to Australia, working with lots of Afghani or Iraqi refugees, doing drums with them. So whilst I have stepped away from being in the limelight, so to speak, as being, you know, some drummer that's in a big famous band, the drums have still served me as my main conduit to earn a living. Yeah, as well as delivering some very important programs where they were needed, obviously. Absolutely. It still sort of blows my mind that really my main talent, apart from, I suppose, connecting with people, it's connecting with people around music. So I'm really proud of that. I really had to work hard. I came from a long way back. It wasn't like I was just gifted a drum kit at Christmas or something. No, you know? no. I really had to work hard at it. I grew up in an area that just didn't have music or even people to jam with most of the time. So I really had to dream my success in my head, really visualize how do I want my life to look in the future. So I'm really proud that at the age of 49, I'm still out there doing it. It's not a grand sort of, I'm in the magazines, look at what I'm doing anymore, but I'm still drumming every day. I use my drums for good, not evil. And hopefully I've left a legacy for people that have helped. Maybe musically, they might like the music or the drumming. That would be great. And I do get people coming up all the time talking about those albums, which is really flattering. But I also get people coming up and saying, oh, hey, I met you in prison about eight years ago and your story really resonated with me and I've gotten back into hip-hop now and I'm making hip-hop or what have you. And I sort of think, well, that's pretty cool, isn't it? Because I'm not a paramedic or a I'm not on the Sea Shepherd saving the world. You know what I mean? I'm just a tattooed drummer, but I'm making a change in the world by just those skill sets. You're making a very important change. You're using your life experience and your dysfunctional upbringing. Yes. Bringing that all together and bringing a very real program. Yep. That resonates with the people that you're talking to. Oh, it does. They can tell if you're talking smack. Absolutely. One thing about people that have come through trauma or come through these situations, a lot of them that I deal with, they're very good at reading body language. That's how they've survived in lots of ways. Their trust is gone in lots of conversations with different people. So you've really got to build their trust. And the way I managed to be able to do that is just to say, look, I'm not here to tell you how to live your life. I'm just here to teach you some drums or play some drums with you or do some hip hop beats or whatever. Would you like to do that? Mm. And what we find is that when people start drumming, it's very enjoyable. It's physical. And much like it cured most of my issues when I was young, anger, embarrassment about the situation I found myself in with my family, anxiety about not being a cool kid, 
in a school where everyone played football or netball, maybe the drumming will do the same for them, the people that I'm helping. So I do look at it as a really sort of noble thing to do. You know, it's, it's a cool thing to do. Something so simple, which is, you know, drumming, because it is, it's primitive, can resonate with so many people because it does. Absolutely. Music is a universal language, so you can take it anywhere in the world. That's right, and I have, and I've got friendships around the world because of music, and they're still relevant today, even though I haven't seen some of those people for many, many years because we can still converse about music and, and swap what music we're listening to. I mean, one thing I will say is that I am fiercely passionate about the role of drummers in music. I never take a backward step. When people belittle drummers or when bands don't value drummers, I'm pretty fierce on that. I love drummers. I've dedicated an entire season to them. (laughs) Yeah. I've given them the opportunity to speak and share their journeys and many have been very appreciative of that because they don't normally get that opportunity. I don't think drummers do. I'm like an enforcer in the drum world. I will not let people diss the drummer. The amount of work that goes into not only being a drummer but just the packing up and transporting and then unpacking and then playing and then packing and then transporting back to your car and then drive home and get it out of your car at 2 in the morning in the rain and then put it in your hallway of your house or whatever and then you've got to go to rehearsal each week and, you know, other people just roll in with nothing. Then on top of that you do all this work as a drummer and let's say some money comes into play, then the money doesn't never get shared evenly with drummers. It's sort of like you're an afterthought. So even if you're in the band, even if you were the designated driver for years, you know, and I'm, not, I'm not talking about me here. I'm talking about just drummers in general, where drummers don't drink at gigs because you got to drive home with all your gear. There's no staying late at the venue like the lead singer or whatever because we've actually got to take our own vehicle home generally with the drums, right? Yeah. And logistically, we're very good drummers. We know how to pack things. Okay, that's very important when you go on tour or driving around, all that sort of stuff. And then as soon as a band hits the heights, people say, oh, but I wrote the song, so I get all the money. I am absolutely not on with that. Sometimes I feel like starting a drummer's union. I really do because I just feel like we get shortchanged so much. If you see a band with a pretty good drummer, if the singer sings out of tune but the singer's got an X factor, he or she or they, but the drummer's good and the rest of the band are okay, generally good band, right? You go see a band with a great lead singer or good guitarist or whatever, drummer is hopeless, band is crap. Mm-hmm. And I just think drummers need more appreciation and validation. I think if you're the drummer and you spend 10 hours a day practising your craft and you can do what the band or the songwriter or the songwriters want you to do within that band and you happen to be like a great person within that band, you should get equal pay. Yes, you should. That's my rant, Di. There you go. Oh, no, no, that's fine. You can have that. (laughs) I'm agreeing with you 100%. It's a bugbear of mine. It really does shape why I never really entered back into that fold when I've been offered opportunities to get back on those big stages. It's not something I've ever really talked about with other people, but certainly other bands have inquired about, hey, would you do a tour with us or would you come and help us? And For me, it's not worth it because if I'm going to take time away from my family and my daughter and take time off my job, I'm helping you, right, if I bring my artistic skill and and all that knowledge and all that time I'm going to put into this project, but I'm paid like a session wage. Oh, there's your 200 bucks a night or 400 bucks or 300 bucks. But you've already put in eight, 10 hours of work of like 
researching their songs and learning the patterns that have got to go on and what drums are you going to use and what drum kit's going to be there on the night and do you get a sponsor for that? And you realise that you get shortchanged. So I would rather just believe that stuff in my head and play in my lounge room now sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> or I'll just go and play a gig in Adelaide and I'm happy if I play and there's 60 or 70 people in a room and they get it, I'm fine with that. That's really good. I don't need to be on the big stages to be the man or be the cool dude. I've been there, done that. People can't take that away. So I'm really happy just to sort of cruise in my own little punk band. Yeah. Is there a band that you wish that you had played with? Wow, that's a tough question. Mm. I need a Red Bull for that one. You know what? I'm going to say I would have loved to have drummed for the Hoodoo Gurus. Fabulous band. They're not my favourite band of all time or anything like that, okay? There's others that have probably overall been harder influences, let's say, but as far as like top 10 or type of thing in the world, they're in that realm. But Hoodoo Gurus were one of those bands that I got to hear a lot of on the commercial radio stations we could get in Gippsland, Victoria, and they crossed over from sort of Perth over to New South Wales, all those great songs like Tojo and all that sort of stuff, and they managed to cross over into that mainstream, that critical mass, and never lose their cool. Mm. They're still cool. And they still rock. And every time I've seen them live, and I did get to see them live a lot, and this is the thing that is a little bit different today. I suppose before the pokies came in and stuff like that, a lot of those bands built up such an audience because they toured regionally. There was an audience for them too. So you could come to my hometown and it'd be a pretty big night. They'd be wild nights, you know, with all sorts of carry-on and punch-ups and you name it because it was like a rodeo coming to my town with the hoodoo gurus or bands of that ilk, Nick Barker and the Reptiles would come through, Boom Crash Opera, Rat Cat, those sort of bands that would come to and tour. Country people used to get to see that or beach people, coastal people. We can't always get to the city. So I saw the Hoodoo Gurus a lot in my youth. I've never really gotten off them. I listened to their new album the other day and I just went, wow, it's really good again. So they're one of those bands I would have loved to drum for them because it would have been fun. I'm not really into, how do I say this? I really admire drummers that can really play well and do their craft. I'm in awe of Buddy Rich and Gene Krupa and Max Roach especially, you know, all those jazz cats. But I've always been into more drummers that play in cool bands, if you know what I mean. So I'm, I'm not really about the big drum solos and the pyrotechnics and all that sort of stuff. I don't care if the drummer's really minimal. If they sort of look cool and they play in a cool band, I dig them the best. And the Hoodoo Gurus always had that for me. They had cool drummers and the band's cool. The songs are fun, but they can still really rock when they need to. And they really can play with anybody. They can play at AFL Grand Final, then they can go and play like some punk club in Germany at three in the morning. They can do it all. They would have been good. Velvet Underground would have been a bit messy, but I would have done it. I do love black Ray-Bans and stripy T-shirts, so that would have been a good one. (laughs) But, yeah, my favourite bands, The Clash, are probably my favourite band with the Rolling Stones. They're my two sort of biggies. I wouldn't have wanted to drum for them because they had the ultimate drummers in their band. I wouldn't want to play for the Strokes, but I love the Strokes because they've already got Fab on drums and he's cool and he does the right thing by the band. UMI, Rusty was sort of my favourite Australian drummer growing up. He was the right guy for UMI. So I think, you know, that's another point I'm making that good drummers in bands should be rewarded because they are part of that fabric that makes the band cool as well. They're part of that chemical combination that breathe life into that whole project. Look, there'd be lots of people I'd want to drum with, I'm just going to go with Hoodoo Gurus off the top of my head. I think that would have been fun to drum for. 
Excellent. If they ever hear this and, you know, they need a fill-in, I'm ready. <laughs> you never know who listens to this. People listen to this all over the place. <laughs> I'm sure they've got plenty of drummers. They've got a fantastic new drummer now anyway since Mark Kingsmall retired and they've got Nick in there on drums and does a great job. But I'm just saying, you never know. I might get the call. You never know. Like I've still got fighting weight. I still drum every day. I'll go with them. All right. Excellent. Travis, how has the pandemic impacted you? Well, look, I own businesses and those businesses have been pretty much shut down in Melbourne for two years. So that affected me. If you're talking artistically, I don't want to take anything away from the pandemic. It's been horrible. It's been horrible for artists. But my job has allowed me, well, one of them, I have many different careers at the moment, but one of my day-to-day jobs is that I work as a music youth officer for local government in South Australia. And when that pandemic hit and we couldn't still have face-to-face activation like music and jam nights and all that sort of stuff, I enlisted people to do instructional videos. We gave those videos across our social media platforms for young people at home to be able to like do drum lessons or guitar lessons or learn how to use GarageBand or Logic better at home, use your phone for making video clips. We just had to sort of change tact. I really enjoy my home time now and I'm working on some drumming art shows that will be released when they're finished. I'm working on them at the moment. They've been a really long-term project that has now come at least into the planning stage now. They were just an idea and then I started reaching out to people and artists and whatnot. And now it's building into something bigger than what I thought it would be. If I pull it off, it'll be an amazing thing for drummers and art and stuff like that. So during that pandemic, I was able to just really sit and I suppose process, how am I going to do this? What outcomes am I getting out of it? Are the outcomes in alignment with what I want? It's not just about making money. It's about how can I do something that's really cool with my passions, which are drumming and lowbrow art and interactiveness and can I raise money for like mental health for youth at the same time? Yeah. The answer is yes. So I've been able to work on that during the pandemic. I'm speaking to someone today from an organisation that I briefly spoke about just in general conversation and they've come back to me saying we could possibly fund this idea with a lot more money to take it not just statewide but Australia-wide. That's really exciting. So I guess that pandemic has given me that time to not only hang out with my daughter and my wife, which I just enjoy, you know, I love that too, it enabled me to take stock of where I was at and start to really think about, well, if I could do this, this is what would need to be done. So sometimes you need that space to have that clarity to work that stuff out. True. And it's good that you've had the positives. Yeah, I'm a pretty positive person. And when I'm not positive, generally I swear or I play the drums. And sometimes I swear and play the drums at the same time. And then <laughs> I find that it's my thing. I don't really play the drums to practice anymore in the true sense that some people will sit in front of a mirror and work on ratamacues for hours and stuff like that. I am more coming from the other angle where it's it's therapeutic. I just play the drums because it makes me feel good. It actually helps me solve problems when I play the drums, which is quite amazing when you think about it because the drumming uses so many different senses at once. You're seeing, you're hearing, you're touching, all that sort of stuff, and you're breathing. But that's when I get my best inspiration and I never really approach the drums like, oh, I'm going to practice this today. I just allow whatever happens to happen. Much like a jazz drummer, I just work on nothing, but I'm working on the drums. So ironically, if I'm annoyed or something, I go and play the drums. If I'm really happy and a bit ADD, I go and play the drums. 
if I'm looking for inspiration, I go and play the drums. Like, it's just bizarre that it's not bizarre, but it's just a blessing that I've found something that has been with me longer than anything in my life. More than my family, more than all the dogs I've had. The only thing longer is probably my football team. You know, <laughs> that's about it. Yeah. And also saw that part of your role being the youth music project officer was mentoring young musicians on skills such as using a computer and working from home effectively and making the most of their equipment. Yes. Which is a skill that a lot of people do actually need but don't make the time or source ways to learn these skills. They're really quite important, aren't they? Look, they are. I'm not very skilled in using the computers. What I've come to find is that I actually don't enjoy the process of recording to a computer. It's just not in alignment with what I love about rock and roll. I find it very paint by numbers. And I'm not saying that people don't make amazing music on computers. I mean, I listen to it every day. And I mean, I love all sorts of music. And I never sort of query, oh, why did you use Pro Tools and and make this amazing looped beat? Like, I just go, wow, this is art. I love it. But I love the push and pull of rock and roll. I love the moments where it it does creep up in tempo and then pulls back. I love all that sort of stuff. So I guess computers for me are just not something that have really resonated with me. I mean, I enjoy playing with drum machines and stuff like that. So I say to the young people, if you have the ability to get down your ideas on a computer, this will go a long way in helping you get your ideas out to the world because you won't have to rely on other people to do it. So it's like building a house. If you know how to pour a slab and build your frame and do the bricks or whatever, you don't need anyone else and you can go and build another house somewhere else or a different house. Without those skills, you need to wait for the guy that or the girl that can come and help you build the slab or the walls. I'm lucky that I have a lot of people I can reach out to and I can put my ideas down on an iPhone, but I've got the skills to go into a studio and say, right, six kilohertz of the cymbals, we need to back that off because it's bleeding into the mics too much when the singing's happening. It's the same kilohertz or, hey, that kick drum is way too middly. Let me retract that. I'm going to move the microphone or I'm going to pat out the drum or whatever. But young people don't have that. So I try and explain to them, you'll be able to work all that stuff out at two in the morning or four in the afternoon if you can do that, those skill sets on your computers. It's also quick access to the world. If you can record a song on an iPhone, put it out to the world. Let the world decide if it's good or bad. But I'm not like that. So I'm not saying they should do it. I'm just saying here's some opportunities. I can give you some skill sets in it. I can pay other people to teach you how to get those skill sets. But for me, Di, I like being in a room with a band. I like that feeling. I want to surf the wave. It's a very important skill set for people coming up or people that are isolated or they want to get their ideas out to the world and they don't have the people around them. Sure, they need to learn how to use this gear now, recording and making their own video clips and stuff. That's the great thing about punk rock. They did their own artwork on T-shirts. They borrowed gear. That's why some of the punk rock stuff is so amazing or garage rock because punk rock drummers in particular didn't know you weren't supposed to do this. They just did it because they had no other choice except put that drum skin upside down on that drum. It's all they had. Or reggae is a perfect example where all those drum sounds are fantastic, but they were literally using pelican skins instead of drum skins because they couldn't get drum skins. I love all that ingenuity. I think that just adds to the whole artistic experience. That doesn't mean I'm not into beautiful guitars and properly tuned guitars. and That's got its place too, of course. But for me, overall, I just love that moment where it happens. And if that can be recorded then, great. But I don't like the whole process of spending six weeks on a drum track or something. That's just me personally. Yeah, fair enough. 
Travis, if you could only offer one tip to a brand new drummer, what would it be? Just to enjoy it. It seems so simple, doesn't it? I don't want to give any sort of like crazy sort of talk about this and that. I think just enjoy it. I mean, you're sort of blessed. If you've got the ability to play the drums in a room where you can be sort of loud and obnoxious and you've got the ability to play the drums, let's say with limbs, you know, there's people in the world that will never get that opportunity to play drums. They might not have the technical proficiency. They might have some stuff going on for them with possibly being in a wheelchair or having cerebral palsy or something. We've got that opportunity. When I say we've, I've got that opportunity. So it doesn't matter about the drum brand or the skins or the cymbals. It does when you get into a recording studio or you're playing in a professional gig, sure. But just the whole primitive nature of it, just enjoy it. Excellent. Who are your top three local drummers? Local as in South Australian or do you mean like in Australia? Well, I normally go for South Australia. I don't know. Do you get out to see many bands? I know plenty of good South Australian drummers for sure. I don't get out as much as I'd like, but I have responsibilities. I work day jobs and then I get home and cook dinner or help with dinner or help with homework. Before you know it, it's 10 o'clock at night. And you've got to have that conversation with your partner about, oh, what do we got coming up this weekend? And when does the car get serviced and all that? So I don't get as much as I'd like. I'll probably go Australia-wide at the moment only because it'll just be quicker off the top of my head. Look, I'm going to say Rob Hurst from Midnight Oil Mm -hmm. is probably one of my faves. Midnight Oil aren't one of my favourite bands. I think they're amazing and I love them, but I don't listen to them a lot, let's say. But I think Rob Hurst is one of my favourites. And I've met him a few times. He's come to the recording studio when I was recording our second album for Living End. And he was just such a great guy and really interested in the drumming and had some kind words for me. I thought that was, he doesn't have to say that. I mean, he knows everybody. So that was fantastic for me. So I'm going to say him. And also, I don't think he's ever done a bad show. Every time I've seen him, I'm just like, wow, that guy can play. I'm going to say Rusty from UMI has been a really big influence. And again, I've got to meet Rusty on numerous occasions. Great guy, enigmatic drumming in in that band. I know they've got a fantastic bass player and fantastic, you know, singer and lead guitarist, but they wouldn't be the band without Rusty. So I'm going to say Rusty. And this will come back to haunt me. I know it. One of my drummer friends will listen to this and go, you didn't say me. (laughs) (laughs) And I'll say, I'm sorry. I haven't spoken to you for months. I'm going to say Jim White from The Dirty Three. Amazing drummer, just an artist. Yeah, they're the three for me off the top of my head. Excellent. That's a tough question. You start thinking of all the It drummers. is a very tough question. Australia's got monster drummers. And as I said before, I'm more of a fan of the drummer in a cool band or artistic drummers rather than sort of crazy session drummers that can do everything. Excellent. No problem. Travis, I want you to choose the three most important to you from the following five. Yep. So we have groove, creativity, chops, technique, and time, out of those five, which three are most important to you as a drummer? Oh, groove, creativity, time. Well, that was easy. Some people really stumble over that question. No, for me, that was pretty simple. I don't care about chops. I think some of the greatest drumming in the history, for, for me, has been really primitive drumming. Mo Tucker in the Velvet Underground is as primitive as you get, but it serves the music so well. So straight away, I'm, I'm about that. I've always been about that, though, too. Like, I've never been about the chops. I admire it. Like, I love listening to the great jazz drummers who have got the chops, but they've got the space to use the chops and they can be creative. But, you know, the realm that I sit, which is that sort of like that garage indie rock thing, I think drummers who are creative can lay it down and give the band a platform to work from. That's my bag. Fabulous. 
If you could invite any musicians to play a concert with you anywhere in the world, you're on the kit, Mm -hmm. who would you call? Where would it be held? And what genre would the band be performing? Okay, so I... I'll just make this easy. I will just put myself in the position, Nick Cave in the Bad Seeds, mm-hmm. with Warren Ellis on violin, and I would just play in that band. And I'll do it, let's go London. Nice. Yeah. I mean, picking a dream band, you could wig out for hours, couldn't you? Some people put together some interesting combinations, which would actually be quite fascinating to see. Is there something that you really tried to play that you couldn't get right or you weren't satisfied with the way that you played it? Yes and no. There's always room for improvement and Mm. that's why I play every day. Again, I don't practice per se, practicing for practice sake. I just play because I love it. But within that, there's concepts I work on fleetingly. I would say that that is a tough one. It's an ongoing process and I guess that's the beauty of music. It's never ending, that quest for being better or trying to play it better. I don't think I've ever struggled within that rock realm. Where I've struggled is where the equipment has differentiated from what you would normally use. That can be quite problematic for a drummer. I've never really struggled strapping a guitar over my shoulder and just playing the same song on five different guitars. Sure, the action on them is different, you know, the string height or whatever, but it's just like all I've got to focus on is my two hands. Drumming is a complex beast. You only have to have an uneven stage, not enough room for the drums, using someone else's drum stool or foot pedal, and they're completely different to what you're so used to using. They're the stuff I struggle with because the tools you're trade are different, but you're still supposed to perform at this same level. I don't know if any other musician has this, so therefore they don't really care about my thoughts on how hard it is to be a drummer. But I know other drummers listening to this will understand that if someone says, hey, just jump up and have a quick drum on this song, it's very different if you get up and the snare is four inches lower than what you would play it. It's like you feel like you're going to fall off the drum kit or nylon tip sticks. Whenever someone hands me nylon tip sticks, I'm like, oh, God. It's like a fear that runs through me. You know, <laughs> It's like, oh, really? Stuff like that. Could I have played stuff better? Maybe. I don't look back. I think it's really important not to sort of look back and sort of judge myself on that song could have been done better on that record because it's like, but at the time, that's what I did and I was 24 and I've had another 25 years to perfect that now. I could probably play the Living End songs better now than when I recorded them, for sure. Yeah. But then again, I'd drum them differently too because I know those songs so well now, I just go, mm, I'd change that bit now. I don't think musically it it works. So there's no point looking back and worrying about it. I just look forward now. There's so much to look forward to as an artist. It just never stops. Yeah, definitely. So how many projects or bands are you currently involved with on a regular basis? My regular band is a band called Double Black. We're based in Melbourne. So some of my best buddies and we are just like a typical sort of garage rock band rooted in sort of 1950s rock and roll I suppose you could say but we play it a bit more fuzzy and a bit more grungy and we've been very fortunate to sort of play around Sydney and Brisbane and we've gone over to Indonesia and done gigs over there and played at festivals and that's great that suits myself and the other guys in the band to a T Matt and Jason because we all have outside lives and other passions that we're following that's great when we get together it's like a best friends catching up that go fishing or play golf. We just happen to play a garage rock band and it's great. That's my main project. I am working on some art projects, as I said, and some community development projects around sort of surf punk rock stuff down in Adelaide. And that's where I'm sort of more headed. I'm, I'm not interested in sort of, again, being a big rock star and touring the world anymore. I mean, if someone wants to ring me and fly me to France and 
to the beach over there or something for a gig, I'll do it, of course, if it's good music. But I'm not hanging out for that. You know, I'm not dreaming about that. I'm trying to use drums, I suppose, to forge the way in, in other areas of my life. You know, not just, oh, I'm in a band, but the drums also help with mental health for young people I work with or drums can help communities by, you know, putting on events. I'm working on an art project and, and talking to art galleries around Australia about helping with this art project and stuff. So they're the projects I'm on at the moment. So it's busy. I'm just not out schlepping drums around four nights a week. But, yeah, I would never give up on the drums. It's just not in me. If I have to go away for a few days, it's, like, really weird. I do get a bit of anxiety. I actually play my drums as the car's running outside i just quickly come inside and just have a five minute bash and go back to the car and then go on my holiday or whatever it's just a routine i'm just so used to now that served me so well why would i change it it works for me it's my elixir of you know youth i still feel young playing the drums well that's great yeah it, it is absolutely where do you see yourself in the next 10 years uh next 10 years i will probably own an art gallery and that art gallery will be a performance space that bands can also come and exhibit their music in a curated sort of interior design sort of space using art and lights and can live stream to the world and stuff like that. And amongst that, I would like to be part of some sort of regional development touring platform for Australia. I think that when you start talking about youth and creative people, not every creative person wants to move to a big city. And there's reasons for that. Sometimes people like the space or they like living near the beach and being able to surf every day, but they already live there. Why do they want to move to Adelaide or Melbourne or Brisbane when they already live in a beautiful spot? So I would like to be able to take more, I don't want to use the word culture because I don't want to diss on their town or whatever, but more opportunities to see like cool rock and roll bands and stuff going to those areas. Mm. And I think that used to happen a lot more back in the day because we didn't have the internet and we didn't have Spotify and we didn't have all that. And I'm not bagging that stuff. That's got good points too, of course. But I think that's why creative people move from their country towns or their surf coast towns or wherever seeking those opportunities. And it'd be great if some of those opportunities could go back out there. And I think it's such a great thing to see your own country. What better way than jumping in a van with your mates You know, when you're young and you don't have like heaps of responsibilities that driving to Port Lincoln or driving to... Wherever in Australia, these outback towns and putting on a show. I just think that's really cool. Sounds fabulous. So I've got big plans. There you go, Di. Politics, maybe politics. I think someone like me could step in and do a pretty good job, but I've got to work on that. (laughs) (laughs) Fair enough. What do you hope to have achieved before you do lay down the sticks for the last time? Oh, all I really care about is just having fun on the drums, having great friendships and just being a rad dad. I think once you become a parent, it's just everything. So I don't really care about anything else. I don't I don't care about my legacy really or anything like that. The only legacy I want to have is that my dad was cool and he was very supportive and he loved me and a good partner, of course, to my wife. But you know what I mean? I'm pretty clear about that. If you know, if you're talking on a musical sense, though, you know, I can't see myself putting down the sticks and until it's time. I just want to play. And if that means I can't play anymore in gigs and stuff, you know, you get a bad back or you get old or whatever and you can't do those things, I would look at different ways of using drums to try and help people from my own house. You know, maybe you teach, maybe you run a drum therapy group. I don't know, but I tend not to think like that, Die. It's quite morbid. I sort of think I'm going to live forever and play the drums forever. And I would hope that, you know, when my time comes to an end one day in this life, before I go on to my next life, of course, I hope that drumming is a real big part of what they talk about in my life. It's not my identity, of course. My identity should be hopefully that I was a good dad and a good partner and a good friend and hopefully a cool dude that had a bit of swagger, you know, good hair, all that. But apart from that, hopefully they talk about and he loved the drums. 
Boom. Boom. Excellent. If anyone hears this and they're a musician and they would like to reach out to talk to me specifically more about not so much just music, but more about ways that they could use their skill set to help people, that's my wheelhouse. So, yeah, if people want to ever reach out to me, I'm on Facebook. You know, if I don't like you, I can block you. It's cool. But, you know, (laughs) just reach out to me because I know a lot of musicians probably get to a certain age where they're not old, but responsibilities start to creep in like rent and mortgage or children. And it can become really hard to still be a creative person and keep your sanity and still be inspired to do what you do. But it's just not covering the bases. And I would say to anyone that is listening that me moving into, I suppose, that community development or youth sector or whatever you want to call it, there's you know, lots of different names. You know, I'm not trained in that world. I'm just a, a drummer that just happens to really love chatting to people and using that as a conduit to show them what I do to make my life really good. And from that, you can really influence lots of people. I feel more successful outside of the living end than when I was in the living end. I mean, that's a, probably a big statement and some people will probably roll their eyes. But when I was in the band, I was just playing rock and roll and and touring the world, and it was fantastic. But now I'm in the trenches. I'm really being quite punk rock about things. You know, I'm I'm in there. I'm helping people. I'm guiding them to maybe a, a better life by using music. I would love to sort of help musicians find another purpose. Like I I actually think my music is better now, even though not many people hear it or see it, you know, because I'm not in a big famous band. But my care factor is is significantly less because I feel like it's the right path for me anyway. I think the music has more value for me because I'm not trying to just sell it all the time and I don't have to go on some shitty breakfast show with fake laughter at 7am to talk about my newest song or record with people that have no interest really in the art. I just couldn't be stuffed doing that now. My music is pure now because, as I said, I play to 80 people some nights. Sometimes I used to play to 40,000 people. Now I'm back to 80. I don't care. I'm really happy with that. So I would say to any musician, yeah, if you want to ever talk about that, reach out, hit me up. our chat today i'm going to ask travis 20 quick random questions or as many as we can get through in the space of two minutes to close the interview are you ready travis ready okay your time starts now name your favorite punk band clash favorite festival that you played at puckle pop what was the first album that you purchased zz top Name the drummer who became legendary for destroying his drum kits in hotel rooms. Keith Moon. Correct. Your favourite TV show growing up? Dukes of Hazard. Name a band you wish that you'd seen perform live. The Strokes. The most sticks that you've dropped during a gig? Three. If a skateboard rider's leading foot is their right foot, what are they said to ride? Goofy. What was the first concert that you went to? ZZ Top. What was the first single that you purchased? Pass. Your favourite CD to listen to on a long drive? Oh, I'll come back to that. I'll come back. What is your favourite song by The Clash? Rock the Casbah. Vinyl or CDs? Oh, vinyl. Name a genre that you don't like. Uh, death metal. Name one thing that you cannot live without. 
hot showers. What was the last concert that you went to? Uh, Black Rebel Motorcycle Club, two weeks ago. What is your biggest regret? Just being a wanker to people sometimes. Favourite cuisine? Oh, pizza. Favourite drummer? Ugh, nah, nah. That's, I'm going to say top of head in the clash. Favourite pastime? Hanging with my daughter. Okay, we'll go back to what was the first single that you bought? Single. Beastie Boys. Um, fight for your right to party. All right, we're out of time. <laughs> okay, you got stopped for 19. We only had one more to come back to. That was all right. You did really well. Thank you once again, Travis, for joining me for the Banded About podcast today. You've been great to chat to, and I hope that everyone who listens finds this as enjoyable as I did. No worries. Thank you very much. I appreciate the opportunity. My pleasure. All of the information and links relating to today's interview can be found in the show notes. And if you've enjoyed listening to this episode, please use the Banded About podcast series link tree which is also in the show notes, to make a donation towards the cost of making this independent podcast series. Until next season, it's goodbye from me, Dice Belaine, Banded About, proudly supporting live music. Bye. Cheers, Di. Have a good one. Bye. (laughs)